Dear friends and colleagues, saying goodbye is never easy. I have spent most of my life working with the United Nations. I feel it is my home. I can think of no other job in the world that would have been so rewarding. And I have met wonderful people along the way and made many friends around the world. It has been an extraordinary privilege to serve as Secretary General these last 10 years. I believe we can all feel proud of what we have done together in that time to address some of the world's most pressing challenges. Without your support, I could not have achieved what I did or got through some very difficult times. And through it all, you, the staff, have maintained your professionalism and commitment and remain true to the spirit of the Charter and the principle of an independent international civil service. That principle remains central to the UN's mission and I know you will continue to defend it. As we begin the next phase of our lives, Nan and I will still be with you in spirit. I have often said that you can take the man out of the UN but you can't take the UN out of the man. Thank you once again, my dear friends and colleagues. I will count on you to carry on your indefensible work, and I wish you all success in the years ahead. That was former Secretary General of the United Nations, Mr. Kofi Annan, giving his farewell address in 2006. He was a Nobel Peace Prize winner. He was a staunch advocate for humanitarianism, graduate of MIT, a Ghanaian conscious leader, and a lifelong international civil servant who redefined the role of the United Nations. So it is that time, y'all, for What in the World right here on WERALP Arlington, Virginia. Get ready to learn more about Mr. Kofi Annan, about the role of the Secretary General, and why the UN, the United Nations, is still very important to Americans. Thank you for tuning in, and now on to the show. You are listening to What in the World right here on WERALP Arlington, Virginia and recorded at Arlington Independent Media. I am your host, Bumi Akinasotu, and I'm so pleased to be speaking with you all today on this episode. Uh, you've been hearing things happening in the world, and it's my job to help you understand what in the world is going on. So it's been a busy few weeks here in the realm of global politics but I wanted to be sure that we took time out to acknowledge the world leaders who many Americans may not know or be familiar with, but they're important to the world of foreign policy. And one such leader is a humanitarian powerhouse. Uh, this person is former UN Secretary General, Mr. Kofi Annan. You may have heard about his passing on August 18th. Uh, he was a highly respected leader of the United Nations for 10 years. He served two terms as the Secretary General. I'm particularly moved by him because he is first an African. He hailed from the great country of Ghana. The role of the UN and the role of the Secretary General is admittedly a mystery for, for many here in the United States. And I've invited a guest to bring us some clarity and to talk about Mr. Kofi Annan's contribution. And my guest is Mintu Pham. 
Mintu is the executive director for, of policy at the United Nations Foundation, where she develops and leads strategic initiatives to strengthen the UN's capability to solve global problems. And she brings governments together, organizations and various thought leaders to help them reach agreement. Over the last four years, uh, Mintu has led the United Nations Foundation's effort to support the creation of the Sustainable Development Goals, which we've talked about on the show last year when we had the UN Youth Observer Manira Halif on the show. She was fantastic and walked us through what exactly the uh, Sustainable Development Goals were all about. So make sure you go back and listen if you're not sure what that's about. Min Tu has taught policymaking at Princeton. She also graduated from Princeton and she's also a Duke grad. She has over 15 years of experience in foreign policy, international diplomacy, and fieldwork. She's born in Vietnam and currently lives in New York City. Uh, Min Tu, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I'm really excited about this conversation. Thanks so much, Boomi. I'm so glad to be here. What we do with this show is we start off with the guest's background and why they decided to do the, the work that they didn't. What's interesting about your story is that I saw that you were a crew photographer for the BBC uh, series Planet Earth, which I thought was pretty awesome. It's uh, pretty awesome, yeah. <laughs> how did you go from crew photography to your role at the UN Foundation? Actually, I've always done, um, I mean, since college, I worked on international issues and international affairs. So, you know, the documentary work was just a blip in the middle of that as I came out of graduate school and thought, you know, I need a break from thinking about all the problems in the world and um, and let's go and just take a bit of a, a respite in nature. Uh, so I did that and was living in Ethiopia at the time. And so I did a little work there, but awesome. um, international affairs, foreign policy has been my thing. What sort of is attractive to you about this space? I see that you were born in Vietnam. So did this have something to do with sort of your interest in the field? Got it. Um, <laughs> so I, I was born in Vietnam right after the Vietnam War. And my father was a lieutenant in the South Vietnamese Army. And after the South Vietnamese lost the war, he was reeducated. And shortly after that, after getting out of reeducation camp, he said, you know what, for a better life, um, and because of the situation in the country being so unstable, he had to leave. And so we left as refugees. I was three years old when I left Vietnam. I was in a refugee camp for eight months, rescued by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, and then uh, came to the United States when I was four in 1979. And none of that could happen without the support of the international community and without the support of the U.S. government in trying to help uh, people who were affected by that conflict. And knowing that this is a situation for so many people around the world and my own obligation to give back and, and do better uh, is what's led me to this field. It's not often we hear on the show of our guests being directly impacted by the UN, although I guess we've had a couple of people who are from Syria or other places who, like you, have an immigrant story and um, because of the UN or the US um, have found their, their families here in the United States. I always ask this because it's, it's always interesting. Do your parents understand like what you do for a living? That's such a great question. <laughs> so, you know, especially as an immigrant family, you know, parents and my parents worked so hard to get me here to make sure that they educated themselves. They had to start and do their college degrees all over again when they came to the United States, of course, after they learned English, that, you know, they wanted to make sure that I was going to be a success and that that was sort of worthwhile. And so when I went to college and, you know, obviously worked hard to do that, but I was interested in history and interested in how social change works and what impacts social change and how we make the world better and what my contribution is. And so I started going down this track and I think they were a little nervous that I wasn't going 
going to be the sort of doctor or lawyer or whatever that, that I think they probably wanted. And my parents, it took a really long time, but I remember my mom didn't get it until she saw a photo of me sitting behind Kofi Annan, you know, as I was staffing him for a major event. And it sort of hit her. Oh, my gosh, I know who that is. <laughs> I've seen him before on the news. Wow, this is what my daughter does. And it wasn't until years, years, uh, years and years later that she kind of got it. But now, of course, fully supportive. Awesome. Well, it's good to know that Nigerian parents aren't the only ones who want their kids to be doctors, engineers, lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You can contribute in lots of different ways. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, you're you're kind of awesome, uh, Mintu, and you, as you've hinted, have worked in the executive office of the Secretary General of the United Nations. There's not a lot of people who can say they've done that, and you've worked alongside Mr. Kofi Annan. But before we jump into his contributions to the world, let's reorient ourselves to the role of the Secretary General and the United Nations. So if you wouldn't mind just explaining to us what is the role of the Secretary General of the United Nations? A lot of people have heard of the UN. Some people think the UN is a world government. It's not at all. It is a place where all of the countries, the governments in the world can come together to talk out their problems and see how they might come together and solve those problems. So the UN is really a forum. It's a conference room, essentially, where all the different countries come and are represented. And when countries are talking, they're much less likely to be fighting. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the ultimate premise. The Secretary General is the person who then, once countries decide what they want to do, how they want to solve problems, the Secretary General runs the part of the UN that then has to execute it. So he is, in a way, if you think about a company, you know, there are boards, boards of directors, the government or in a parliament, you know, the governments that come to the UN, the member states are the ones who set the agenda, who decide what's going to happen, decide if they're going to end the war in Syria, decide if they're going to try to combat climate change or end extreme poverty. And the Secretary General runs the organization that executes it. So he is, and I say he because we've never had a female Secretary General, so I would use he in the general term here, but hopefully one day we will have a woman Secretary General. Yes, yes, yes. Um, But, you know, so he then is tasked to execute that. And not quite the role of a CEO, a chief executive officer, because he still all along the way has to ask for guidance and advice of all the governments. So the UN is only as strong as all the governments around the world. And the Secretary General is only able to do and execute what all the governments in the world are have guided him to do. And I'm sure that's and a so, tricky role because these countries are vastly different and they all play exactly. different roles within exactly. the UN. Yeah. And you imagine all the countries in the world. So you've got the United States and the way that we think about issues. You've got Saudi Arabia. You've got South Sudan. You've got the Chinese, the Russians, Brazil, you know, small countries like Benin, large countries like, you know, Russia, who all have to, they speak different languages, have different cultural and philosophical and religious traditions, and they have to come together. And when they don't, it makes the job of the Secretary General incredibly difficult. So the role of the Secretary General is to be the voice, I think oftentimes for the voiceless, (laughs) to be the person who implements and says, okay, if this is what the governments agree on, here's how I'm going to do it. And to guide the people who work for the UN proper in how they do that. And oftentimes, the most effective secretaries generals are the ones who can influence governments to do something that they often wouldn't do. And so, you know, on climate change, really setting the agenda and then behind the scenes trying to get governments to be more ambitious 
to do a lot. So a lot of the role of the Secretary General is a kind of behind-the-scenes diplomatic, you know, sort of uh, honest broker, trying to get countries where they're disagreeing to agree so that then he and the UN can do their job better. Who gets to decide who the Secretary General is? Because the Secretary General mm-hmm. has term limits, right? Yep. And so how is this person selected or who gets to select them? And does the U.S. play a role in this at all? In the UN, you may have heard of the Security Council. This is the council that is tasked to maintain international peace and security, which is a fundamental goal of the UN. And the Security Council is made up of 15 members. Five of those members are the victors of World War II the Chinese, the Russians, the United States, the French, and the, and the United Kingdom. Those five countries have to agree on who the Secretary General is going to be and not veto or disagree on who the Secretary General is going to be. And they essentially make a recommendation that then goes to all the other 193 countries in the UN. And so the U.S. role in that is absolutely critical. There's no one who can be Secretary General if the U.S. says no. And there's no one who can be Secretary General if the Chinese or the Russians or these other three say no. So that's absolutely critical. Um, Now that process is slightly changing in that uh, all the other governments, the 188 other governments, don't have to necessarily adopt what the Security Council says. This past selection of the current Secretary General, Antonio Guterres of Portugal, this process was slightly different, but it's still the same in that the U.S. has to say yes to it, and so do the other five countries. But this time around, it was more transparent. But the selection process is essentially those victors of World War II are, are essentially able to decide who the Secretary General is going to be. And so is there like an application that's put online on the, on the UN website? Like- you know, so the, pro- <laughs> the process has changed. It used to be that, you know, we didn't know. It used to be that a country like the United States could say, hey, you know what, what about this person? And then, you know, see if the other countries would agree. And then lo and behold, it was, you know, even less transparent than, you know, maybe selection of the Pope. This time around, um, each of the candidates for Secretary General had to go in front of all the other countries and speak about his or her um, priorities, values, objectives for the UN. And in fact, this time around, there were a lot of women who were candidates. Um, There was a groundswell of support to have a woman candidate this time. In the end, the best candidate and the person who got through the process and was not vetoed by any of the five countries that I spoke about um, was uh, a man, but who is an incredibly thoughtful and Um, effective Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Can an American be the Secretary General? Um, There's no rule absolutely against it, but there's an understood rule or an understood kind of agreement that no one can be Secretary General who is from one of those five countries that I mentioned. It's just kind of a, you know, a gentleman's agreement in a way. We haven't seen that and we probably won't, but there's a rotating seat. So, you know, this time around, um, it was either going to be Western Europe or Eastern Europe. There's Latin America. They have these rotating seats. Africa, you know, on down the line, but not not one of the permanent five. Uh, the United States is is a is the host of the UN. It's headquartered in in New York City, and the United States is also the largest contributor to the the UN budget. And we'll talk about later on, you know, the relationship between the UN and the United States. As many might imagine, this sort of role of the United States makes matters complicated, especially when it comes to decisions about war. And in the past, I'm sure many of our listeners are aware of more recent occasions where the United States and the UN differed on on various wars or issues happening all around the world. So can you just, just talk about the relationship between the Secretary General and the United States President? The Secretary General's 
appointment is has to be in full support of the from, from the United States. The U.S. also every year has to pay its dues to the U.N. and the U.S. pays a significant share of the one part of the kind of core budget of the U.N. The U.S. pays 22 percent, and in the peacekeeping budget, the U.S. pays about 28 percent. And some people would say that gives the U.S. an outsized voice in the U.N. And others would say, why does the U.S. pay so much when we're only one of 193 countries? We don't pay a, a you know one ninety third share of of the U.N.'s budget. And I think you know the proper way to think about it is if the U.S. has a veto over who the Secretary General is going to be, has a veto over any kind of security issue, whether it's going to you know airstrikes over Syria or you know the climate agreement or anything like that, that the U.S. especially on peace and security issues, the U.S. has a veto over that and has significant um, say over other issues of human rights, development, humanitarian, on down the line, that actually the amount of money that the U.S. supports is reflective of that. But the relationship, you're absolutely right, with the U.S. and the U.N. is a delicate one. And in some, under some presidents, it's a very good relationship. And in others, it's not a good relationship. And that is a careful fence that we have to straddle and walk and make sure that, you know, sometimes if the Secretary General is seen as too close to the U.S., other countries can and understandably get upset because they don't want the U.S. to have too much of an influence over Mm -hmm. the U.N. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when the relationship is not so good, there's a question of whether the U.S. will fund the U.N. in the amount that it's supposed to, whether the U.S. will bash the U.N. and what the implications of that would be in terms of the U.N.'s reputation. One thing about the role of the Secretary General is that he, and again, I use he because we haven't had a woman, uh, will uh, have to adjust oftentimes how he how he pushes for something, uh, depending on what the position of powerful countries like the U.S. or the Chinese, how they view an issue. For instance, you know, previously the Iraq War back in you know uh, 2003, because a country like the U.S. had a certain point of view that was different from other countries, and so it's quite a delicate balance and something that a good Secretary General knows how to navigate, and someone who's not so good has to quickly learn. Yeah. So let's talk about how Mr. Kofi Annan navigated these, some of these complicated um, matters. And as I mentioned on August 18th, we sadly lost Mr. Uh, Kofi Annan and many around the world have celebrated his life since then and everything he's done for uh, security and humanitarian issues. And I know last week was the UN General Assembly week, which is packed full of side events and forums and parties, I'm sure, and Mm -hmm. meetings of all of the member states of the UN. And I'm sure, uh, Mintu, that there was an acknowledgement of Mr. Kofi Annan and and his work. Mr. Kofi Annan was the seventh uh, secretary general since its founding, uh, since the founding of the United Nations. And you, as I mentioned, had a a great opportunity to work for the man. Uh, And so tell us, what did you do for Mr. Kofi Annan? I was such a such a, a privilege uh, in my <laughs> life. So I was his policy advisor. I worked in his what they call the executive office of the secretary general. You know, there's a kind of a kind of a UN shorthand for it. So in the White House, you could say, you know, you work for the Oval Office. In the UN, you say you work for the 38th floor. So the office of the secretary general sits on the 38th floor of that very tall, thin building that you might see in New York with the blue glass on uh, 42nd Street. My role was in the strategic planning unit within that office, which is a a unit that is supposed to look at the long-term challenges for the UN and for the global community and then figure out how the UN can help address those things. And so uh, one of the things that I was brought in to do was to help address the crisis in the relationship between the U.S. and the United Nations. And 
It touched on some of the issues that we just discussed. Um, my very first day on the job, I was given a stack of letters from members of Congress <laughs> who had been who had written to Kofi Annan asking why there was potentially waste, fraud, and abuse in the UN, and he had to respond. And so I was tasked with that. And I was also tasked with, you know, not only to respond, but to specific inquiries. But how do we strategically build a better relationship with the U.S., given the strain on that relationship at the time? And this was in 2005, 6, and 7. And how do we change the U.N. to address some real problems that the U.N. had? To, to reform it, to make it a better institution. That was my role. And in that, I got to work quite closely with him. I got to also be uh, have a front row seat to what I say, you know, the sort of history of, um, of the world. I was asked to be a note taker for him in his phone calls with leaders around the world. Um, Hugo Chavez, Condoleezza Rice, George Bush, Prime Minister of Lebanon, Prime Minister of Israel, you know, um, president of Russia, I mean, you know, on down the line, every world leader. We didn't record phone calls. We had a note taker. So Kofi Annan only had 10 of them. Actually, the story of how this <laughs> only happened. Only 10 note takers. <laughs> well, but you have to imagine if this is what he does day in and day out, quite a strain. So that was not the only role that I played. I did all these other things. And then I had to squeeze in occasionally being on call for taking notes. But actually, the, the how that transpired was pretty interesting. So I was the youngest woman. And for sure, the I was the youngest woman who was a professional inside the executive office of the Secretary General. I was 28, 29 at the time. And, and you know, so someone at that kind of level doesn't normally get to have this role. But I was in a meeting with Kofi Annan, his chief of staff, my boss, and I was just, you know, I was the sort of lowly staff member, everybody else, you know, the, the other four were the big wigs who run the institution. But I went in and note take for that meeting, and it was just an internal meeting, no one from outside the UN. And there was a question that came up, and I couldn't tell you what it was, but, you know, no one had the answer. So I knew it. I scribbled it on a piece of paper handed it to my boss. And he says, Oh, great, good staffing. Here's the answer. <laughs> and I remember it was it was only a few months into my time working for Kofi Annan. But I remember seeing him lean over like, who is this other person in the room? I think wow. he just hadn't quite noticed because they were right in the middle. of it. <laughs> and he looked right at me. And, um, and then the next day, I got a phone call at my desk. And it was his executive assistant who said, Mr. Annan would like to ask you to be one of his note takers. Wow. He only has 10. It's a real privilege. It means you get to be on the phone with world leaders and, you know, really having a front seat to history. And that's not how she said it, but she said he doesn't have a lot of these people. But essentially, you know, it was him really paying close attention and, you know, that's part of it, but also that, you know, kudos to kind of, you know, knowing your stuff and, and trying to be a good, um, knowledgeable staff person. Um, but that's how I got to, you know, and I, just hearing him and how he was able to make world leaders get world leaders to do things that they wouldn't normally do. And this is really kind of his gift and his his contribution to the world. He was a very, and you'll see this in other obituaries, and he, he had this quiet dignity about him. And he was able to get world leaders to think twice about what they were trying to do in a really subtle way without being oppressive or without being demanding. And I think a lot of leaders would imagine they're effective because they sort of tell you what you need to do and try to hard charge. And, but he was none of that. He was, when he spoke, you had to calm down and quiet down. And, you know, and I would hear him on phones with, you know, phone calls with, as I said, you know, Hugo Chavez, who boy, you know, has done some, say the least, interesting things, but who genuinely felt like Kofi was his friend. And that was, that uh, enabled Kofi to be able to do things that I think would have been very, very difficult. I remember in 2006, and I probably won't mention which conflict this was, but um, because it's behind the scenes, but, um, <laughs> you know, Kofi Annan was able to get very significant world leaders to negotiate the end of a conflict that was in the headlines that was just a very 
difficult negotiation. And he didn't do it by saying, you have to do this, this is what, you know. He would do it by getting, you know, asking a question and then repeating the answer and then having the person kind of realize how absurd it was, or how, <laughs> how what they were suggesting would not actually work. And he was able to sort of say things in a certain way and ask questions in a really targeted way where they would kind of come to the conclusion themselves. And, of course, you know, the way to get these, you know, big wigs on the world stage to agree to something is have them think it's their own idea, you know. So, you know, and he was able to coax these world leaders, get off the phone with one and then get on the phone with the other and try to essentially, not just try, actually did essentially broker an important, you know, end of a conflict um, that year. And I saw it all play out. So I have a, a, a couple of takeaways from these amazing stories. First is, if there are any interns or junior level staff anywhere listening to this show, the moral of uh, Mintu's story is always do your best and always be prepared because you never know you where, never know <laughs> where exactly. you'll be taken. So don't ever take for granted the small task of, of just being present and being a good listener. Um, Absolutely. And- the other thing is, and that was just one very small part of my job. I mean, a bigger part of my job was, as I said, advising and managing the relationship between Kofi Annan and the U.S. government at the time. So, you know, this was just after the Iraq War, which many people said was illegal. Kofi Annan, when pressed by a journalist, he ultimately said what was true, which is that the U.S. war intervention in Iraq was illegal by international standards because the Security Council had not approved it. So Mm. what that means is, so the Security Council, that membership of 15 countries, but with the five who really run it, uh, no, there can be no cross-border. So in a country, one country cannot cross the border of another country and intervene militarily unless the Security Council approves it. And when the U.S. came in and invaded Iraq, that was in 2003, that was not at with the approval of the Security Council. And so when Kofi Annan was pressed on this in 2004, he said, yes, the Iraq war was illegal. And you can imagine how the U.S. government, members of Congress would have reacted. Republicans in Congress who were very much behind this were furious. And so they then came after the UN and Kofi Annan. And so this is the reason why my first day of the job, I had all sorts of letters written <laughs> by Congress. And people then also said, well, hang on a second. The UN, so they found, they found examples of what the UN had done wrong. And, um, and that, that really created a crisis. You know, members of Congress were calling for Kofi Annan to resign. It was a real crisis. And my job was to manage this and to figure out how do we get around this. And so... It was through trying to find a way to just solve the problem. How do you improve the UN? How do you manage and explain to members of Congress and to the American public the value that the UN provides, that you can't just walk away from the institution, that it's imperative that the U.S. is at the table, that actually the UN is helping to address some of these issues. You know, one of Kofi Annan's legacies will always be that um, he sought to figure out when, when when do we decide to go in invade a country or to intervene is the word for this, right? In Bosnia or in Rwanda in the 1990s, if you all may remember, you know, there were 800,000 people who were massacred in Rwanda, the genocide, in April of uh, 1994. And the Security Council and the world didn't intervene at the time, and people said we should have. There's no excuse. This is sort of another Holocaust. We said never again at the end of World War II we would let this happen. And yet, in Rwanda in 1994, 800,000 people died within the course of a month, were killed, slaughtered within the course of a month. And then in Bosnia, in July of 1995, you had 8,000 men and boys in Srebrenica, 
be killed because the UN didn't have the authorization to actually fight against the Serbs who had been who were about to slaughter them. And at the time, people said, well, the UN or the international community just sat back. And then in 2003, you had the international community saying, um, you can't, we can't go into Iraq. We cannot invade Iraq. And the U.S. did go in, and that was also seen as, uh, as criticizing, you know, the, that intervention. So Kofi Annan spent a lot of the latter part of his term as Secretary General trying to figure out when should the world go in and save people on account of a humanitarian issue? And when do we not go in because we're invading a country and destabilizing something? What should those principles be? And in the end, one of his legacies will be, and I remember asking him at the end, you know, what, what, are, your, what are the things you're most proud of in your tenure as Secretary General? And he mentioned two things. One is the responsibility to protect, which is that when a government is unable or unwilling to prevent its own citizens from being slaughtered, then it's the obligation of the international community to do something about it. That's the responsibility to protect. And he got all 193 governments around the world to agree on that principle in 2005. The second thing that he said was his, was the Millennium Development Goals, which was the set of eight goals that were agreed in 2000 to cut extreme poverty in half by 2015. And we did that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk about your, your interesting role in, in trying to, in Mr. Annan's effort trying to work with Congress and and communicate to the American public and to elected officials just how important this is and the Iraqi war. I I certainly remember all of the controversy uh, around the United States' move. You know, I'm just going to play devil's advocate here. Um, And and I guess not necessarily devil's advocate, but it's something I struggle with um, as someone who observes this this space is, you know, we have the issue of, of state sovereignty. And the Republicans and conservatives, and I think just generally people who who are skeptical of the U.N. often say, you know, look, if I'm a country um, and someone harms my people or harms or threatens my security, I have every right to defend my citizens. It's it's what's called for in the in the United States Constitution, certainly. And that's what we expect as citizens is that our country will do what it needs to, of course, within within limits. And that's where we sort of have the rules that you, mm-hmm. you mentioned. But I, as, a, as an ordinary taxpayer, expect, because God knows I'm not going to go to Iraq and shoot some guns or whatever, right? I expect my country um, to do what it needs to do to protect the American public. So how, do, how did um, Mr. Annan and how do you and other sort of mm-hmm. folks in similar positions, how do yep. you balance this argument of state sovereignty and the idea yep. that, Countries will just ultimately do what they need to do, regardless of what the institutions, um, regardless of what international laws may say. No, sovereignty is is the number one principle in world affairs. There is no question that a country has the right to defend its own uh, citizens and its own borders. That that is not in contradiction to the United Nations at all. That is a fundamental principle of the United Nations. And I'd encourage your, your listeners to look at the UN Charter. That is a fundamental principle of the United Nations. The idea is that with sovereignty comes responsibility. So that if you are actually protecting your own citizens, that's exactly your role and that's exactly what you should be doing. Now, if you are abusing the rights of your own citizens, your own citizens, especially in a mass way, or you're you're unable or unwilling to defend and support the rights of your own citizens, that's when we may have there may be an obligation of the international community to support you. So, for instance, if you look at a country that is not able to support 
their own citizens, maybe they do need to go look to the UN for support. But if a country is abusing the rights of their own citizens, then that's when we need to start to think about, well, what is that obligation? With sovereignty comes responsibility. And that was such a key idea that Kofi Annan really supported, that it's not just sovereignty means that you can do whatever you want to your own citizens. It's that you have a responsibility to protect them. And if you're not able to, then other countries have a responsibility to help you protect them. And if you're unwilling to, then other countries have the responsibility to sort of step in. But sovereignty is an absolute bedrock of the United Nations and of the international system. The UN does not override sovereignty whatsoever. A second point uh, I want to raise on this is that, and it's such a good question, is that with sovereignty, we have to think about sovereignty and responsibility and our national interest in a broader way. I can't just, as a country, decide that I'm going to do something just for me without without understanding also the implications that has either in the long term or with other countries. My own interest is connected to the interest of the countries around me and of countries around the world. So for if the United States wants to stay safe, it's very, very difficult to do that if all you do is cite sovereignty and build a wall around. The world is a dynamic and moving and changing place. And what we do impacts other countries, and what other countries do impacts us. There are problems. Kofi Annan used to talk about problems. There are problems without passports. If you have contagious illness and you get on an airplane from Hong Kong (laughs) and you fly to the United States, there is no wall, no no amount of sovereignty that's going to prevent that illness from going into your own population. This is what we saw with Ebola. We saw this with the avian flu. We saw this with SARS, lots of different things, right? And so the only way for your country to stay safe on those types of problems is to work with other countries, cooperate with other countries to figure out how do we work together to do that. When I work with another country to solve a problem that I know is going to going to cross a border, the best way for me to do that is to work with others. Mm-hmm. That's what the UN is for. Those problems that don't have passports, and there are many of them, there are health issues, global warming and climate change, environmental degradation, migration and refugees, conflict that spills over, terrorism, you name it, on down the line. Those problems will never just stay within arbitrary borders that we've drawn for ourselves. Those are the kinds of problems that you have to work with other countries. Weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons, I mean, you name it, right? And that's what the UN is for. Yeah, what a hard job, man. I <laughs> I would I would <laughs> This is this is not um the balancing this is not it can't be easy. And I I think just like about and I think maybe I've used this example mm. in just personally, right? We we struggle yeah. with this type of stuff in our own lives when you have in my household, we I have a brother and you yeah. know my you know I have my interests uh and then there's yeah. the household interest and then you know certainly <laughs> my actions and what I decide to do could get my brother in trouble yeah Um, and certainly my brother his actions could get him in trouble and get me in trouble yeah Uh, and ultimately my mother had the deciding factor she was a deciding factor Mm -hmm. anyways Mm -hmm. so yeah we did what we could to make sure we didn't piss her off one but that we didn't hurt one another that's right that's right and you think about you know I mean even taking it down to the playground or your neighborhood you know I mean you know your the lot size of your home doesn't define you know where Things, you know, I mean, you can decide what happens within that, but 
boy, you know, if something that you're doing seeps into your neighbor's garden and kills their flowers, boy, you know, you do have an issue and you guys have to talk it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you, you know, can't it's build a, a wall that. around your house. Yeah. I guess you could, but yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, to the point about, you know, these are tough problems, but they're actually, they, they become less tough when you're able to understand what's happening on the other side. Mm-hmm. What, what, the, what, what the other side is thinking and where, what their perspective is. And, you know, people know this in any kind of conflict, whether it's, you know, you have a fight with your brother and realize it was just a misunderstanding or, you know, you are trying to figure out what the other party and the other side is thinking or goodness knows in the you know political environment in this country right now. We know that the more we sort of understand and talk to one another in calm ways, we can find, we find out that we have a whole lot more in common. And maybe with that, let me just mention one last story yeah, about Kofi Annan, um, which, you know, because when you say you know, these problems are so big, part of it is you know, we have so, there's so much in the world to try to deal with and people who want to make the world better and want to change, they think, gosh, where do I start? How do I even begin to get involved? And, you know, one lesson I learned from Kofi um, is that, you know, does it matter what was on his plate, all the big world problems on his shoulders? He still was such a decent and kind human being at a very personal level. So I remember at the end of the first year that I worked there, he had a Christmas party at his house here in New York. And he invited just his staff, so the people who work for him inside the UN. And um, he and I, he was greeting people at the door as they were coming in. And I got there and he was thanking me for all of the, you know, tremendous sort of challenges and work that we were doing with trying to improve the relationship between him and the UN and the United States. And as we're in the middle of our conversation, a, a gentleman named Lakdar Brahimi. And if you uh, don't know him, you know, he is a rock star diplomat. You know, you know, the Brahimi Report and Peacekeeping, he's a rock star diplomat and just, you know, one of the most senior people inside the UN. He walks in and I thought, oh, you know, I was 29 years old. And, you know, I mean, I I wasn't a, you know, an intern or kind of, you know, but still, I mean, compared to him, you know, so I sort of stepped out of the way and let Kofi and I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to go and get get myself um, something to eat. And next thing, and so Kofi very quickly said hi to him. And next thing I know, I feel someone pulling my elbow back. And I look up and it's Kofi and he says, oh, no, we're not finished talking, you know. And, and I was like, oh, I was just trying to get you in. And he said, no, no. I mean, it was just so clear that it didn't matter what my level was and that there was someone who was so much more high level, important, you know, and all the rest. He was still focused on me and asking me how my family was asking me how I was doing and, you know, work, thanking me for everything that year. And that that personal touch was just so indicative of a man who was from top to bottom able to do what he was able to do, that he was so effective because he thought about the little things and the big things. And those little things really matter. Because your role has been for so long trying to convince the American public and uh, Congress about the importance of the UN, I guess, could you just tell us you know, your take, you, you, I'm sure you speak with many people who are skeptics, Mm -hmm. you know, what is your final sticking point to people who are still kind of like, I don't know about the UN, they have a track record of doing some pretty crazy things. And you know, all of this, what what would you say is the reason why anybody should care? You know, the UN is only as good as the governments that make up for it. And if the United States has a certain value system based in democracy, and human rights and doing good in the world, the only way we can get the UN, meaning all the other governments in the world to do that, is if we're at the table, is if we're contributing our views and trying to influence others to the way that we think about things. The U.S. is the founding member of the UN. We wouldn't have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that says that everybody has 
certain freedoms. And, you know, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written by Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, this is an American document. <laughs> you know, and we've now been able to get all the other countries in the world to agree in it through the UN. Now, if we were to go and try to do that with each individual country, it would take us forever. Right. But through the UN, we're able to get everybody else. So the UN is a, um, what we call force multiplier. You know, if we are able to just get our message across more effectively. We share the burden through the UN so that, you know, the U.S. doesn't have to send troops to Haiti and send troops to Lebanon or send troops to South Sudan, to these places that we know we don't want to have, you know, devolve into conflict because the UN can. And so we can contribute a little bit to it and everybody else pitches in and we can have much more of an impact there. And at the end of the day, as I said, when countries are talking, they're not fighting. And for us to get any, to address any of these problems without passports, any of these big problems, we have to be there working with other countries. And when other countries are safe, when other when the world is more stable, the U.S. is safer. And the U.N. is an incredibly important tool in the U.S. foreign policy toolbox for us to create a safer world for ourselves. If we care about our national interests, then we have to care about all those things that could, could impact that. And that is the rest of the world. And the best way to do that, the most efficient way to do that is through the forum where every single government is represented. And that's the U.N. Yeah. And as you were talking, I was thinking about our very first episode um, with Ambassador Ruben Brigitte, who is the the dean at the George Washington Elliott School. And we were talking about realism and liberalism and all the different <laughs> ways to look at the world, all these foreign policy yeah. terms. And oh, he, mm-hmm. he, he broke them down very simply. And mm-hmm. and the way he described organizations like the United Nations and World Bank is kind of like the rules of the road. Right. We these institutions were created, as you mentioned, by the United States to ensure that people follow the rules of the road, that we were sure. all in agreement around the world about just mm-hmm. basic things. And yeah. and so when those rules are violated or yeah. when those rules are contested or questionable, we all as a global community have a place to go to to say, hey, this yeah. is what's going on or this person or this country needs to be held accountable. So I think that's, that's another right. reason why we need places like the UN is is because they have the rules of the road uh, that yeah. keep us all, as you mentioned, safe. Right now in this political environment, there's a lot of people who are questioning what the U.S.'s role should be in the world, how much should we lead, and how much should we just focus on our own issues inside this country, inside the United States. And there are many who will say, well, we have a lot of poor people here. We have a lot of problems. We should just focus on what's happening in the U.S. And I would say you can't make problems in the U.S. better if you ignore everything else outside. U.S. leadership in the world, U.S. moral voice, is absolutely critical to making sure that those returns are then, that everything we want to see in this country happens too. You can't improve the state of your own country, your own neighborhood, unless you care about what's happening next door, unless you care about what's happening elsewhere. And the U.S. is an incredibly powerful voice. Everyone in the world looks up to us. People around the world look up to American values American democracy as something they wish they had as well. This is why a lot of people would love to come to the United States, why our own families as immigrants want to come to the United States. And so we are a beacon of hope. And I hope that we stay and continue to be that. I think a lot of people are questioning whether the U.S. is going to continue to be that beacon of hope right now. And we absolutely have to keep doing that if we want to make our own country 
better and safer. Yeah, well, I'm glad that there are folks like you at the UN Foundation and part of the UN system who are doing their best to make sure that the United States remains relevant. And and I will say that, you know, this is a topic for another discussion, but even despite all of the issues we do have at home, and and, and, and again, this is part of the reason why I started the show, We mm-hmm. people have been like, you know, we have police brutality, we have income inequality, we have all these issues at home. But I say, one, America can walk and chew gum at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, two, two, you know, a lot of these issues issues um, happen in other countries. And so why not be in a presence or be in a space where we can learn from other other countries uh, like Sweden or Norway or even places, countries in Africa um, who who might have best practices uh, to share. So I, I totally agree in that we need to remain on the global stage, particularly at the UN. And I'm just so mm-hmm. thankful that folks like you and certainly um, the subject of our conversation, Mr. Kofi Annan, were around to work and have these uh, tough conversations to do battle with Congress and the American Mm -hmm. public and make sure people understood why we matter. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, um, Mintu. This has been a fantastic um, conversation. I've learned a few things (laughs) um, (laughs) about the UN uh, that I did not know before that, like, for Mm -hmm. example, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote the UN, Mm -hmm. you know, Human Rights Declaration. Like, I had no idea Mm -hmm. that that was Mm -hmm. the case. So that concludes this episode of What in the World. You can listen to the episodes that I mentioned, for example, Mm -hmm. our conversation with Munir Khalif and Ruben Brigadi. You can listen to our conversations about Syria Uh, and democracy, all of those topics we've covered on previous episodes, simply go to whatintheworldpodcast.com. But certainly want you all to tune in uh, to WERA.FM where you can listen to other episodes as well. You can listen to other shows that are here at the radio station. And I do want to make sure that our listeners know that I use Arlington Independent Media to record great conversations like the one that I'm having with Mintu. And if you want to continue to hear more great dialogue and to expand your understanding of the world, please consider giving a small contribution, $1, $5, a million dollars, whatever you got. Please consider giving a contribution to the radio station. You can go to WERA.FM and just click donate. And that contribution goes directly to support Arlington Independent Media and all of the fantastic people who work here, who support me and my show, and certainly all the equipment that we need to make sure we have a great conversation. So with that, what we normally do on this show is ask our guests to share a song that keeps them in a good mood uh, when the world gets a little crazy. So what is the song and who is the artist mm-hmm. that you've selected for your show? I think the song Walk On by you 2 really just epitomizes um, what we're trying to do in the world is about devoting yourself to freedom and to, uh, you know, doing better in the world. And it's just so inspiring. And every time I hear it, I get teary um, because this is really, you know, it, it's about human nature and about how we all are aspiring for something more and that we are ready to fight for it. So it's a song about freedom. And uh, I have to say, uh, Ruben Brigitte, our first guest, also had a U2 song as well as his <laughs> Uh, as his show uh, theme. So thank you again, Mintu. I appreciate it. And listeners, if you would like to learn more about um, the UN and the work that Mintu and the UN Foundation is doing, um, and if you want to just make sure that 
Congress knows that this matters to you, I encourage you to go at, go to the UN Foundation website and check out all of the great resources and information that they have and ways that you can get involved and volunteer um, for the foundation to ensure that, you know, the United States and certainly our elected officials know that this matters and that we as taxpayers care about uh, the UN and the United States is present. So thank you again, Mintu, and uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you so much.